Welcome to the Author's Porch, where every good conversation happens. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride from author to author. We want to give you an experience where you learn and enjoy the conversation. Authors tell you about their journey, you learn about new books, and at the end of the day, you go home with a smile on your face because the Author's Porch is a beacon of light bringing you home to the family you never knew you had. We hope that you enjoy the show. Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Author's Porch, where every good conversation starts. Today, I am honored to have with us Lynn Cox. She is an author, a swimmer, a dog lover, but she's much more than that. I've actually been a huge admirer of hers for years and years. Um, Lynn has has done many, I don't even know if I can get into all of your accomplishments and um, all of the wonderful things that you've done. So I do want to concentrate, she has a new book coming out. So here we are on the author's porch uh, talking about Tales of Al. And Tales of Al is about a Newfoundland dog, am I correct, uh, yes. in Italy. Um, he is a rescue swimmer dog, and I really want to hear about this book. I've read her other two, uh, well, she has more than two books, but I have here uh, Swimming to Antarctica and Swimming in the Sink. Um, I, I, I just, I, uh, <clears throat> Lynn, take over. Well, so what happened was a number of years ago, a friend told me about these amazing water rescue dogs in Italy that were leaping out of helicopters into oceans and rivers and lakes to rescue people in Italy and off the coast of uh, apparently also in, in Switzerland and in Germany. And so I was intrigued because I've been a swimmer all my life. I've had lifeguards watch over me when I've swum. I've been a lifeguard before. So to have people that do this with their dogs really intrigued me. So I decided that I had to go to Italy to see how the dogs were trained, mostly because I was curious to see, you know, are the dogs being well-trained? Are they, is it positive reinforcement? Is it negative reinforcement? Are they coaching the dogs? How do they get dogs to leap off of Coast Guard boats in Italy and, and out of helicopters? And how come the dogs aren't fearful? So I went to Italy with this in mind and it was an incredible experience. First of all, I met this group of people that are training not just Newfoundlands, but Labradors, Golden Retrievers, German Shepherds, and other dogs to become water rescue dogs. And somebody asked me, you know, why are you focusing on these dogs? Maybe they're not that important. Maybe all you need is a person in the water to save somebody that's qualified. And so I found out from the group in Italy, led by Donatella Pasquale, who was the vice president of the uh, Scuola Italiana Carne Salvataggio. Italian good. Water Rescue Dogs. <laughs> I had to practice that off and on, and I probably still didn't quite say it right. But um, she was the one who explained to me that a Newfoundland dog and owner, who's also trained as a lifeguard, can pull in up to six people at one time. And that a Labrador or a... German Shepherd or Golden Retriever can pull in two to three people at one time. 
So what you have is the capability of pulling in more people that are in danger, or you also have more sets of eyes on the water because wow. you'll have on these different beaches in Italy and, and sometimes in Germany and Switzerland, you'll have lifeguards who are watching the water, but you also then will have volunteers who are acting as backup that are human people. And then you also have their dogs. So they're, they're trained to look for a signal of drowning, which in some cases works because some people, when they're drowning, start to raise their arms and that signals that they're in trouble. But there are a lot of people that are silent drowners mm -hmm. where they just slip into the water and they're trying mm -hmm. to keep their head above water. So just because somebody isn't raising their arms doesn't mean that they're in trouble. And this is something that else that I learned through writing this book that, you know, when we're watching the water and, and if you've ever been a lifeguard or a swimmer or a beach or just swimmer, a swimmer, yeah, exactly. You've you, seen you it. Can't, a, a bunch you of can't time. help. You can't help but notice, or you can't help but notice when somebody may be getting into a situation where they're going to get into trouble. Mm -hmm. I mean, there've been a couple of times where I was in Huntington beach where I was suddenly with a friend and said, Hey, can you hold my shoes and my car keys? Cause I need to go in and help out these kids. Cause they were being pulled out by yes, rip and they didn't even realize it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the cool thing is that they don't have huge numbers of people that they rescue each year in Italy because so much of what they do is prevention. And I think that that's, you know, as, as athletes, like we are as triathletes, as swimmers, as, as whatever, when we're by the water, we can't take our eyes off of it. And we notice things when they start to happen and that's when it's time to react. So I wrote about some of that, but I also wrote about dogs because I love dogs, really love dogs as much as I love swimming. And I wrote about experiences that I had as a kid with swimming and with dogs. So it's, it's more than just the story of Al and her experiences becoming an elite rescue dog. It's also about you know, what, what draws us into the water, why it is fun to swim with a dog, not just another person, and what we gain from those close connections that we have with our pets. <laughs> I'm a dog lover too. I'm trying to wrangle all of them during this interview, but I think they're part of it, so it's okay. <laughs> I think it's great. I think it's great to have them here with us because they are they are the reason for this whole book and for us being together right now. <laughs> yeah, I am a huge dog lover, a swimmer. Um, I just I've been such an admirer of yours for so many years, and I love your writing. Oh my, I'm a writer as well. So I, I when I and when I read your swimming uh, adventures, I just get sucked so far in. They're just, I, I've been in some of the positions that you've been in, not <laughs> just normal long distance swimming, not any of the crossing the Bering Strait or swimming in Antarctica or swimming the English Channel twice or any of those things. Um, but I have felt an eerie presence beneath me. Um, I have been flagged in like there's a shark out there. There's a shark out. Everybody's in safe, but that was the last time I swam that beach. And, um, you know, I let it, I let it frighten me a little bit. So now I stick closer to the bays, um, and I'm getting older and I've been tossed around by the ocean a little too much. I've been injured. So I, I, but I, I love how you're still doing the swim for America and all of these lovely things that you're, you're keeping your community, 
um, the swimming community is so tight knit and everybody's follows you with bated breath. And we always want to see what you're up to next. And, um, so I can't wait. This book is going to be released on the 24th, I believe. May 24th. It'll come out. There'll we'll be a launch. Go on. People actually can pre-order the book now on Amazon or, or from their favorite independent bookseller or from whoever they want to order. And actually it's been so exciting because the pre-orders have been so high that the book has already gone back to a second printing before it's even been released. And this is something that is not happening at this time. So it shows that we have people that are really interested in this subject. And the other thing that, you know, you mentioned how we keep our swimming community together. One of the things that happened during the last presidential election, there was so much division. So one of the things that a friend suggested is, you know, okay, so you swim across the Bering Strait to bring the United States and Soviet Union together. What are you doing for us? So I thought about it and I thought, you know, maybe what we could do is put on purple bathing suits or wear a purple bathing cap or put on something purple showing the bringing together of blue states and red states or blue blue thought and red thought and bring it together as we're beyond all that. As as athletes, we, we tend to come together in, in any situation. People need people help. People need people to help them. There are people that are swimmers that'll help out. People need the beach cleaned up. The swimmers will be there to help out. So, mm-hmm. so what happened was I announced this now, I think 18 months ago, and there were people from all over the world that were swimming for America. And they were posting their pictures on Facebook. Wow. And they were, it was really great to see, you know, people in Australia and Europe and Asia and all that swimming for America. And so I thought, wow, that's so cool. And then more time went by. And then we saw what was happening with Ukraine and how the war was going on and Russia was invading. And, you know, again, there's a sense of what can we do? What do we know? What do we have? What's within us to make a difference? And so my idea was, why don't we just put on something yellow and blue to, to symbolize Ukraine and the flag and, and to go swimming together in unity? So on April 4th, that's what we did with people all around the world. But beyond that, I asked swimmers to please donate to a charity that's been vetted that you think is good to help support the people in Ukraine. And so I think that happened as well. And now um, I think that we'll go back to on June 4th, uh, swim again together wearing purple back to Swimming for America because people now are posting their pictures on that day from all over the United States and they're looking forward to doing it. So wherever we are, we do it. And there've been a couple of times where the water was polluted off Long Beach where I tend to swim Mm -hmm. and I couldn't get in the water. So I put on my cap and stood in the shower in my bathing suit. (laughs) 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 And there've been other... Other people like um, the, on the East Coast that through the winter, it's so cold, mm-hmm. but they'll go in for a dip and they'll put on a purple wool and cap. Capri is a friend back in on the East Coast. And there'll be other people that do whatever they can to show their connection to, to each other, but also to the water. So it's been very fun. Wow. I know I, I follow you on Facebook and well, on social media and um, I see all the, po- the posts with the purple, uh, swim caps and the purple bathing suits and people are all over the United States and everyone just seems so united. And I love that our little community, it, it, even it's a large, but little community of swimmers. Um, 
we're, you know, we're a daring bunch. We like to get, we get in that cold water. We're not all like you. See, the thing about Lynn is she's one of what, four people in the world, three people in the world, something like that, who has this, I, I, maybe I did my research wrong, rare anomaly that you can handle very, very, very cold temperatures uh, and your body regulates it, correct? Well, I don't know who else is training in really super cold waters, but I did train for many, many years. And the coldest swim that I'd ever done was in minus three degrees C off, which is 26.6 degrees off the coast of Greenland with icebergs floating by. So I think that's the coldest swim that has anyone has done intentionally. And it was just a quarter of a mile, but it was so exciting to be able to push out so far and do that. But it took me years and years and years of training to be able to get to that point. Part of it may be body type because I'm, I'm not a tall, lean person that gives off heat really quickly. And so by training and having the body type that works for this, I've been able to do the swim in Antarctica and do the swim across the Bering Strait in water temperatures that were, the Bering Strait was 38 degrees, Antarctica was 32 degrees. But there was a huge difference between swimming in Antarctica and then swimming in Greenland where the water was 26.6. I mean, it was so intense. And, and I've never swum so fast in my life. <laughs> <laughs> that would have killed, killed anybody else. <laughs> yeah. For sure. Well, actually, it was back to what we were talking about earlier on. One of my support crew had been a lifeguard in Newport Beach, and he'd been on the US, UC Santa Barbara water polo team. And he was there just to make sure that I was okay, as well as another friend who was a very big, strong guy. So if there had been a problem, they could have pulled me out of the water pretty quickly. And we had everything set up so that if I did get into severe hypothermia, we already had made contact with a hospital to, to have that as a backup. But I had trained and I had done swims in 30, 32, but still that was a huge leap from 32 to 26, you know. That's, I, the coldest I've done is 52 and that was full wetsuit, um, Alcatraz. <laughs> That was, that was it. Oh, we just had an earthquake. I'm not kidding. No, no, that was your dog running by you. No, no, no. That's why they ran by. We had a little, the whole, the whole uh, house just shifted. <laughs> Hello, California. <laughs> Whoa. Every time that happens, my heart stops. I don't know why I've never really seen anything too crazy, but um, the animals sure can sense it. And uh, I yeah. wonder, oh, so that, that brings me to a question. Um, as far as the, like, Al, I want to talk about Al specifically. Um, it seems like you fell in love with him. And I just, I really want to talk about him. But do those dogs, can they sense before someone starts to, like, if someone has a, a seizure or a, um, a, is about to have, you know how rescue dogs or su- uh, support dogs, they can detect whether a diabetic is about to go into insulin shock or if someone's about to have, if they're epileptic, if they're about to have a seizure or are these dogs trained to kind of gear into detecting this stuff way before it happens um, in that way, kind of like sniffing out drugs or, or like sniffing out ailments. They're the dogs are trained for different things. And Al and the water rescue dogs were learning how to become water rescue dogs, specifically that. But after Al went through all of her training, 
Donatella Pasquale, who was the vice president of the school, wound up taking her to learn how to do search and rescue. And apparently she was an unusual Newfoundland for many reasons, but one of the reasons was that she was really good with her nose. And Donatella said to me once that she said that she wishes that she had trained her to hunt for truffle because she was so <laughs> good at it. But mostly these dogs are about life-saving and there are different dogs that are trained for different things. There, there were, as I said a little earlier, there were golden retrievers and Labradors and maybe their owners had worked with them on other skills or more of an assistant kind of dog. Because what I'm finding here in the United States is that there are places throughout the United States and in Canada where people are training their dogs now to do water rescue as well. And so they, their way of training though and what they do for their testing is different than what's done in Italy. And while I'm on the book tour, I'm going to be meet, meeting some of these people who are working with their dogs and finding out more about the North American way of training the water dogs. Wow. So, but the cool thing that I saw in Italy was that the dogs were really taken amazingly good care of and that the way they were trained was always with positive reinforcement. I was wondering at one point, you know, what happens if a dog is supposed to leap out of helicopter and is afraid? You know, does the, does the owner push the dog out? Do they go back another day? What, what do they do? And I was told that so far, all of the dogs that have participated in this training want to be on board the helicopter and are eager to participate and to do the rescue with their owner. But if they don't want to do it, then they're not forced to do it. So, and I also saw sort of similar skill level things that you see with a coach where they're working with a novice or beginning swimmer, where they're trying to work on the strokes with the child or the, or the teenager who's trying to develop a better butterfly backstroke, breaststroke or freestyle. And the coach will work on a skill to a certain level and then back off if the child or teenager isn't understanding what to do. The same kind of thing I saw with teaching the dogs. They, they know when the dog has reached a certain level that it can't go beyond and it's time to go back and do something that the dog will enjoy doing that knows how to do to reinforce that, okay, you, you're doing well. You know, you're not, it's not a negative thing that you didn't understand today what I need you to do. So I thought that was really interesting too, the, the gentle way of training and the way that everyone cared about their dog, but also cared about the other group's dogs as well. You know, there's, there was such a, sort of a team unity. And so having grown up swimming and been on swim teams and been around friends that have kids on different teams, you see that happening where you care about each other and then afterwards you get together and you eat. You might get together and eat breakfast or you might together lunch or, or have dinner together. And one of the things that I did during this time in Italy was to get together with the, the group that was training and have dinner, a, a huge Italian dinner. And over dinner, like we do after a race, or after you know something where we've put out a really hard workout, we'll debrief. We'll debrief. We'll talk about what we experienced and hear different people's perspective, or 
we'll learn from each other of what what you've experienced and what I've experienced, and then we learn something more for that experience. So it's been really cool because a lot of what I write about in the new book, Tales of Al, is about how I'm learning from them about their method of teaching the dogs, about their philosophy about dogs, about how they care for them, about how some dogs may be more responsive or quicker than others, just like a child or an adult where you're trying to teach them to swim or teach them a new skill. Some people get it faster than others. And the Mm -hmm. same thing happens with the dogs as well. So one of the recurring themes within the book is that just because Al, for instance, is not getting it, (laughs) just because she's not understanding what Donatella and the other oh, trainers. Al's a girl. Al's, Al's a, girl, a girl. Female. Al, okay. Al's a girl, and that's that. That was sort of uh, threw me off too at first because, first of all, she wasn't a black Newfoundland. She was a brown Newfoundland, and I'd okay. never seen a brown Newfoundland in my life before. So that intrigued me, and then the color of her eyes were kind of a golden bright yellow, and so you know I had known Newfoundlands the Lanciers that are the black and white and the ones Mm -hmm. with big brown eyes. Mm -hmm. And I'd also known the big black ones with the brown eyes, but I'd never seen a brown one with yellow or golden eyes. And so, you know, I thought, hmm, often you'll have a dog that is bred a certain way and there'll be different ways the genes are expressed. So I wondered if, you know, will this dog be different than the black and white Lancier or will the dog, will Al be different than the black Newfoundland? And, you know, I don't know, I could say that I, I realized through the course of this time with her that she responded differently than the other two dogs. But I can't <laughs> say that all brown Newfoundlands are like Al, you know, but um, so tell, us about, is, tell us about how a little bit of, of her characteristics that, that really drew you towards this animal. Well, Donatella Pasquale had a Leonberger, which is a huge dog that looks somewhat like a lion. And she oh, had wow. one that had predominantly red fur. And the, the dog was initially bred because there was a place in Italy where they Leonberg in Germany, sorry, in Germany, where they had lean, where they, the town was called Leonberg. So they decided to create this dog that looked like a lion. So the dog is an enormous dog, actually bigger and sort of leaner in some ways or more muscular looking than the Newfoundland. And Donatella had one of these dogs. So I was invited to go meet Zach, her Leonberg. And we went to her house and Zach was going through really big health challenges. He wasn't really able to get up and walk anymore. And so when we came to the house, Al went over and laid down beside her and put her head on his paw. And I thought, oh my gosh, you know, instead of circling and jumping up and down and running all around, right? she knew she that she knew that, that, that Zach was going through a difficult time and she was right there beside him, reassuring him. And so that's the other thing that I saw later on, there were Labradors that came over to visit and there was one named Bella who was a black Labrador and she was so excited and energetic and all she wanted to do was to be around the other dogs and to 
train with them and to basically learn how to do whatever the next task was. So when I had first met Al, she was only two years old. And some Newfoundlands mature really fast and learn water rescue skills. Actually, I was just talking to a woman, um, Peggy, in uh, Kansas City a couple days ago, and she works with Newfoundlands in a lake in Kansas City area. And she was telling me that her dog at six months old had learned how to pull a line in from the water. So there's a step sequencing of how you train the dog to rescue somebody. And the first thing is you throw a line out there and you have the dog retrieve that line. So at six months, the dog got it and was so ready to do it. She told me about an elderly dog that she had who was 10 years old and the dog just didn't want to do this at all. She didn't want to participate in the water rescue. But at 10 years old, one day she decided that she wanted to go out and do it. So she said, so she explained to me that, you know, just like people, some people just don't want to do it. Or they just don't want to swim in the open water or go to the mm-hmm. beach. They have other things they want to do. The oh, people think, I, think I'm crazy half the time. They're like, no, thank you. Pacific Ocean's cold. <laughs> it's got sharks yeah, in but it. You know, yeah, yeah the, the, the thing, though, is that with swimming in the Pacific Ocean, they don't get to see what you get to see. I mean, right. last week I was swimming in Alameda's Bay with my friend in Long Beach area. Mm-hmm. And there was a mom dolphin and her baby who surfaced just right near us. Wow. And then it swam on and a second mom and baby swam up to us. They were less than 10 feet away. So, yeah, you can say swimming in the ocean or in the lake or whatever is crazy. But what do you miss by not trying new right. things? Exactly. You and know? and the and the what is the percentage of people who actually are attacked by sharks? It's like zero one percent. It's tiny. It's and you, tiny, you but greater risk of getting hit by a bus. Yeah, you probably do, but also it depends on where you're swimming. So I think that the other part True. of it is, you know, is it is there an area in the world where there are real problems with sharks? In fact, I was just doing an interview with a group in South Africa last week, and they were telling me that they were doing a swim from one side of the bay on the Atlantic side of the Cape Town Peninsula. And they were doing a swim that was about 21 miles long and the water's really cold. And when I was there, it was really super sharky. I mean, it was really scary to swim in that water. And they said that, you know, it's been about 30 years or maybe even 40 years since I did the swim around the Cape of Good Hope. I was the first person to do that. And I had men that were special forces men that had shark guns that were watching for sharks while I was doing the swim. I wrote about this a lot in Swimming to Antarctica. So if you ever want to know the details, but Oh, that's a great book, by the way. I love that book. And I do want to talk about, uh, um, I want to, I want you to keep going, but I want to, I want to talk about another one of your books as well uh, before we, before we cut, cut this interview um, to an end. So keep going on that note because it was fascinating. Okay, so they were telling me that now, because there have been a group, a pod of orcas that have moved into the area, the sharks have pretty much moved away. So I said, oh my gosh, we all need to get black and white caps for you and call your swim team the orca swim team, because orcas will attack sharks, and they do keep them away. So this whole area that was really known for being super dangerous is there's still sharks, but not to the levels that there once were. 
and so and there's no danger from the the whales. But as far as I know, as far as I know, there's there's been no danger. In fact, years ago I did research on orcas, and and I was told that there was one diver in the Strait of Magellan who had been a Navy diver who was attacked and killed by an orca. He was wearing a wetsuit, so he probably looked like a seal. Like a seal. So yeah. that may have been, you know. So maybe maybe the triathletes that are wearing wetsuits won't want to wear wetsuits. <laughs> <laughs> So I, I reached out to the San Diego open water swimming group um, that I occasionally hook up with. And I asked them if they had any questions that I, I told them that I was interviewing you. And I asked them if they had any questions for you. Um, they did want to know, um, they had three questions that, that I, that stuck out in my mind. And one of them was you swim such long distances Um where do you go in your mind? How do you keep yourself going? Um, how do you keep yourself um, from like getting gripped by the monotony of it? Um, how do you keep from getting bored? What, what do you, what, what do you do? I read a lot. I read a lot of books and I, a lot of my long, long distance swimming was during university and prior to that. So I was always having to take in information and, and memorize it. And so what I would do is take a piece of athletic tape and fold it in half so it stuck to itself. And I write down all this information in ink on the tape and stick it in the bottom of my suit. And I'd swim along and pull out the tape every once in a while so I could remember what it was I was supposed to learn. So that was part of it. But nowadays, I spend a lot of time working on my new books while I'm swimming. So I'll wake up in the morning full of ideas. I'll go swimming, and as I'm swimming, I'm thinking about what I want to say, how I want to say it, what the story is going to be, the arc of the story. And then often, actually, with Tales of Al, I was so excited about writing the story because it's a real happy, positive story that I was waking up at 3 in the morning to write. Uh -huh. So I'd work, at, I'd work from 3 to 6 or 7 and then swim and then come back and do some editing on it. And then the next day, get up really early again to continue writing. Oh, but I, reading is really the way. Wow. <laughs> I, I love to hear that. Um, okay. The second one was, have you ever done a triathlon? I have never done a triathlon for two reasons. One is I'm a terrible runner. And the second reason is when I was in college, I was on my bicycle and somebody ran me off the road and I fractured my rib in half and bent the frame of the bike I hit so hard. So the idea of racing on a bicycle and, and getting injured like that again just never appealed to me. I really decided that I love being in the water and it's a safe place for me and a happy place. <laughs> <laughs> and the third question was they wanted to hear more about Grayson. Now, I love this story. You wrote this book about Grayson. Grayson was a baby whale you encountered on one of your swims, right? And right. Um, it, it, he'd been swimming alongside of you for about a mile before you realized he was there. And, um, and you realized if you swam in that he would follow you in and, um, and beach himself and his lungs would collapse and he needed to find, he was still, you know, at that feeding age, right, of where they need their mother. So you decided to stay in the water with him and find his mother. And I love that story. And I would like you to just give us a little snippet of 
uh, a memory or, or something from the Grayson story? Well, I think that the key was that I was swimming early morning alone when I was 17 years old and I felt this being moving around me, but I didn't know what it was and it scared the heck out of me and I just wanted to get out of the water. But there was a fisherman on the pier who told me that I had a big gray whale with me. And so I wound up swimming with him for about five hours as we searched for his mom. But it turned out that there were fishermen out there that started looking for them and people on the pier that started watching for him or for his mother. And there were times where he would swim right next to me where I could just reach out and almost touch him. And then Somewhere in this long odyssey of trying to find his mom, I actually was able to touch him. And he looked at me with his big brown eye. And I felt this connection. I mean, like you do to your dog or somebody that has a cat, that same connection. And the thing was, was that, you know, usually you don't name a being that's a wild animal. But I kept thinking, this is the son of the gray whale. It's the son of a gray whale. Oh, it's Grayson. And so once I named him, he became even more important to me. Like, I just can't get out of the water. <laughs> I have to stay here. And so that at one point became kind of dangerous for me because I was starting to get really cold. And I thought, I need to go ashore. And fortunately, there is a happy ending to the story. <laughs> I don't know if I want to give it away. No because spoilers, I no think spoilers. That... You can find Grayson on Amazon. <laughs> Okay, that sounds great. It's been translated into 23 languages. So wow. if you speak if you speak a language other than English, and even British English, you can find it. Okay. <laughs> well, I just want to thank you for joining us here on the Author's Porch. Lynn, you are an American treasure, and you're an inspiration to all of us. All of us, dog lovers, swimmers, any any anybody who's who's paying attention to what's going on across the world, and 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 how you bring us all together. I wanted um, your book launch, uh, I'm sorry, your your book tour starts on the 26th. You're gonna start it off here in San, oh, I'm sorry. Starts on the 24th of May. And oh, I'll be in San Diego, be in San 26th. Diego at the La Jolla Library at 4.30. Okay. And I will I'll see you there. there. And then, um, can you give us a quick brief of, of, of the, the cities you're going to hit and um, and before you before you go? Sure. I'm going to be going all up the West Coast of the United States, as far up Pacific Coast, as far as Sacramento, then flying to the East Coast, going down the East Coast, then going around the Great Lakes Midwest area, then the Pacific Northwest, and then home. So if they want to get specific dates and places and times, just go to www.lynnecox.com and it gives the whole book tour. Okay. And if you want to show up to the La Jolla um, library event, there's only 40 seats left. You have to pre-register um, and it's going to be fantastic. And I just, I really can't wait to finally meet you in person. And thank you so much for being here with us today. Is there anything else you'd like to tell your, your followers, your fans, your am, loyal readers? I'm so happy. <laughs> I'm so happy to be part of this community and I am thrilled that I write for people that are adventuresome, that like to do things that are different, that are positive and bring good things into the world. And when I go to book signings, it is so much fun because people have that energy. And so now we'll have those people with people that have dogs who have <laughs> the same kind of really great energy. So it should be a really good time. And also, if anyone wants to pre-order any of the books that I've written, 
Well, especially the pre-order for Al, they can pre-order it from Amazon or from okay. their bookstores. Yeah. Wonderful. Okay. Well, thank you so much. And um, maybe we'll have you back again. So have a great book tour and thank you for doing what you do. And, and I'll keep following you and I'm sure everybody else will too. Thank you for coming to the author's porch and have a lovely day. Thank you. You too, Nicole. It was great. <laughs> <laughs> Author's Porch is a certified veteran-hosted podcast. Show your support. Tune in, share, and subscribe.